Welcome to the Church and Culture Podcast, a weekly discussion with Dr. James Emery White on the latest trends happening in culture and where and how the church should respond. Jim is the founding and senior pastor of Mecklenburg Community Church in Charlotte, North Carolina, president of Serious Times, a ministry devoted to exploring the intersection of faith and culture, a graduate school professor, a former seminary president, and the author of more than 20 books. I am your host, Alexis Dry, and I can't wait to dive into this week's conversation. Hey, everybody, welcome. Um, You'd be hard-pressed these days to hear a church sermon or to read a Christian book that does not come across or does not include a quote by C.S. Lewis. Without a doubt, he is one of the most influential Christian thinkers in modern history, and his influence is far-reaching, really beyond the realm of Christianity. And so we thought on a podcast that is dedicated to church and culture, we would be remiss not to talk about a man who so prolifically has bridged secular culture and the Christian mind in such an engaging way. So hopefully this conversation will both pay homage to Lewis, but at the same time provide encouragement towards ways in which we might also follow in some of his footsteps. Now, Jim, you, I know, have a special affection for C.S. Lewis, and I think I've heard you say before that you've considered him to be somewhat of a mentor to you. And so can you tell, maybe start off the podcast by telling us a bit about how you first came upon him and what it was about him or maybe his writing that most captured your interest or first captured your interest you're absolutely right i'm i'm an unashamed fan of lewis in every way and and uh have studied his life and it's been enhanced by my own studies at oxford and being where he taught and lived and and um and uh picked up a lot of stuff on lewis while i was there from people who knew him it was really interesting to talk with him and um, one of my more recent books, Christianity for People Who Aren't Christians, was actually kind of the thing where I said, I'm bringing along a partner for this. It was a book written for non-Christians, but, you know, on various things. And his, his name is C.S. Lewis. And I'd gotten permission from the C.S. Lewis Foundation to use an awful lot. Not not in a – it'd be audacious to say it was an update of mere Christianity, but that was kind of the intent at the time. Mm-hmm. So uh, deep, deep love and affection for all of his his writings. You know, part of my attraction, if you just look at his life and just the things about him, uh, C.S. Lewis, his, which people always well, – what does C.S. Lewis stand for? C.S. stands for Clive Staples. But he hated his name, so he always went by C.S. And his friends actually called him Jack, and he would go by Jack. Um, he went to University College at Oxford, where he got double firsts in both classics and English. And um, he taught first at Magdalen. It's pronounced, I mean, it's it's written like Magdalene, like Mary Magdalene, but you pronounce it Magdalen. And so he taught at Magdalen College and then later at Cambridge. Um, and in 1931, he came out as a Christian, and he came out of atheism. And that was aided by a conversation he had with J.R.R. Tolkien and a long friendship he had with Tolkien, who's a devout Christian, which we can talk about. Um, greatest Christian apologist of the modern era, hands hands down. Uh, he died on November um, 12th, 1963, the same day as John F. Kennedy and Aldous Huxley. And in one of my books I wrote that of those three incredible lives, arguably Lewis impacted the most people. Hmm. Um, and uh, he was part of a group called the Inklings, which is another part that's fascinating. There's a group of literary, uh, you know, writers who got together with at uh, the Eagle and Child Pub there in Oxford, which is locally known as the Bird and the Baby. And they would uh, drink and read their writings and talk about their writings. And it had people like Lewis and Charles Williams and Tolkien, and uh, later Dorothy Sayers, and just just an amazing literary group. And uh, one little quip: there was one uh, when when Lewis was was a uh, you know, 
Irish. He was born in Belfast. And um, and he was at a you know big personality. And he would tease. And one day Tolkien came and they would read each writings. And Tolkien came to started reading one of his writings again. And Lewis stopped in the beginning. He says, No, just tell me it's not another bloody elf story. <laughs> I love those elf and stories. So they're, they're good friends. And uh, so uh, my attraction is multifaceted to him and his life and his writings. Mm. Well, when did you first get introduced to him, though? Because I know that you became a Christian a little bit later on in life. So yeah. was it before you? I was, I, re I was reading him as a boy. I actually was reading what? him as a boy. Uh, yeah, I, I stumbled on his stuff, and I remember I read Mere Christianity uh, in elementary school. Yeah, but I mean, you have read very widely. So I what have. was it about Lewis that like drew you to him more than some of the other people that you've read? Because he. And we'll, and we can talk more about this. He wrote less as an academic and more as a scholar, and much of it is his apologetic appeal. He he was earthy. He was funny. He was witty. He was he had could make very complicated things simple, and yet still stay deep. Um, he uh, he wrote in so many different genres, whether it was fantasy or apologetics or even science fiction before science fiction was very well known at all. Uh, some say he wrote some of the earliest science fiction. Um, and so I, I was just drawn to the personality that came through the pages and what he wrote and how he wrote it. I just found it brilliant. Mm. You mentioned just a bit about his his journey to faith. And I I only know a teeny bit about that, but I know that there's a lot more to it. And mm -hmm. I so is there more to his conversion story that you feel like would be really helpful for us to know? Yeah, if you want to read a spiritual biography, autobiography, it's called Surprised by Joy. And it's a, it's a fascinating read. Um, but the the when it happened, okay, there is a story there. It was um, in September of 1931, and he had had two friends over to where his his rooms were at Maudlin at Oxford. It's called the New Building, and it's funny at Oxford. It's called the New Building, but it was built in 1733, <laughs> which tells you something about what it's like around Oxford. <laughs> but um, so he had rooms there, and he had two friends over: Hugo Dyson and J.R.R. Tolkien, and. They would often, and they went for a long walk around what's called Addison's Walk, which is behind uh, Modeling College. It's a beautiful little walk. I've walked it, I feel like a thousand times. And um, and they were in a conversation about metaphor and myth. And Lewis loved the myths, the great Norse mythologies and such. And, and, and of course, if you've read Lord of the Rings and you know how much Lewis was also into, I mean, Tolkien was also into that. And so... Um, they were talking about those and as myths and, you know, and, but, you know, yet all lies, but myths, you know. Sure. And Tolkien said, oh, they're not all lies. Not all hmm. lies. And Lewis said he remembered that when Tolkien said that, there was this rush of wind and this swirl of leaves surrounding them. It was like this strangely spiritual supernatural moment because when Tolkien said that, it just penetrated Lewis. And then that, that, that you know, wind leave phenomenon kind of happened. And, 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 you know, Tolkien said, yeah, with, with, when it comes to myth with Christianity, the myth is true. The great dying God story come mm -hmm. to life. It's true. And maybe all the other myths are just shards of lights from the one true myth. That's not a myth, but myth in the capital M sense, the word saga, but it's true. Yeah. And 12 days later in a letter to Arthur Greaves, a boyhood friend, Lewis said that he had passed on to Christianity, moved from atheism to Christianity. And he mentioned, my talk with Tolkien that night was key. Mm. Oh, I love that. Something else that you mentioned about Lewis, like 
that I really appreciate is that he is so much more than just one thing. Like he's more than an author. He's more than an apologist. He's more than, he was also a professor. Um, And he he writes, he writes as a husband in one of his books and also a friend. And then obviously the Chronicles of Narnia were um, for children. But what I think in terms of our larger conversation, in terms of a Christian worldview and what this podcast is really um, trying to highlight is that he just really exemplified having a consistent Christian worldview in so many aspects of his life. How do you most see that? You know, he called himself the world's most reluctant convert. Interesting. But those that knew him, such as his biographer, Walter Hooper, once called him the most converted man he ever met. And 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 I would say that's true. All of Lewis's mind was wonderfully baptized by the Christian faith, just so thoroughly converted, you know. Um, and and you know, we, we often think in of of conversion in almost pietistic ways. And what does it mean to to you know walk with Christ that way? And and Lewis was earthy. <laughs> he was just earthy. Uh it's often been said that he wouldn't even be, couldn't be hired. Uh, today by the evangelical college that stewards his personal letters. I mean, he was a pipe smoking, <laughs> ale drinking, free speaking Irish guy. Um, I There are tales from my time at Oxford where, um, you know, the Inklings many times when they met, they, you know, they would meet, drink beer and do, they would meet in the morning. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> this would start. And there were there were people that I've talked to at Oxford who said that um, that Lewis would often come to class and you, you could, you know, he'd been drinking beer, you smell the alcohol in his breath, and that his jacket would often have holes in the pockets because his, he'd take his pipe and put it oh, in there the and pipe. ashes were still alive and, you know, get out and have the holes in his pocket. And and so, um, uh, and, you know, it's, it's funny how we focus on those kinds of things and, and miss maybe the larger picture of what it really means to be converted and to live a life deeply in Christ and walking with him and and the fruits of the spirit and such. Interesting little side story. Another, I was in the Eagle and Child one day and I was doing some afternoon writing in there. And um, and I'd been there so many times I'd built a relationship uh, during that season with the manager and, and the staff. And I remember he just came over to me one day and he says, those bloody Christians. I said, what? Um, <laughs> what did we do? <laughs> but he was talking about others. And um, and and he said, uh, they keep nicking the menus. Now, nicking means stealing. Oh, oh over there. yeah. They keep nicking the menus, stealing the menus. And he says, they cost me two pounds each. And he says, they just come in here for Lewis and they steal my menus. And they're supposed to be Christians, right? They're coming in for Lewis and they steal the menus. And I remember thinking to myself, you know, so many of those people wouldn't dare drink a pint. And they don't. They, go in, they don't go in there. They don't spend a dime. But they, but they, but they'll steal. Sure. But they'll steal. I really like what you said about, you know, he was that quote that you used that he was deeply converted. And yet this very earthy image that you painted for us, because I feel like what a refreshing and maybe needed picture for, especially like a, um, a non-Christian world to think mm-hmm. about of a Christian rather than like a, you know, super mm-hmm. pious, you know, um, judgmental kind of mm-hmm. hypocritical sense. I, I feel like that's mm-hmm. what a wonderful, refreshing image to have in mind. One now, of the reasons people like Lewis so much comes through in his writings. Yeah. Well, that's what I was Same with to... G.K. Chesterton, very similar kind of personality. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's where I want to, I think this might be connected then to my next question, because I wanted to hone in on a bit um, with him being an apologist. Apo- am I saying this right? Apologist? 
Apologist. Apologist. Mm -hmm. Apologist, right. Um, one of the books that he's most well known for is Mere Christianity, in which um, I think I'll probably talk about this, but a lot of people don't realize that it was based on a series of radio talks that he had mm -hmm. given, which were then put into this book. But he's obviously not the first apologist. He's not, he was not, he's not the last. And so, but he is, his legacy there is outstanding. And so what do you think it was about him and the way that he wrote or the way that he communicated that has made him such a, yeah, a fruitful apologist. Well, you're right about the radio addresses, and that is that even is a good intro uh, entryway into how he was so pop, uh, popular. It started off with the BBC wanting him to do one 15 minute address. This was during World War II, doing one 15 minute radio address on the Christian faith, and it was so well received. They invited him to do a second address, and it ended up being four 15 minute talks, and that was so successful. They said, well, "Would you come back and do an extra one to just answer questions?" And he did. Mm -hmm. And then that was so received well, he did a full, they asked him to do a second round of talks. And then he came back and do a third round of talks. So all of that then later was put together and 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 into book form and polished up, obviously, from the radio side uh, and became mere Christianity. So it was a series of about 12 to 13 different BBC addresses, a round of four, and then another round of four, and then another round of four. Hmm. Um, you know, his whole thing, when you, when you read him and his letters and his writings and such, um, he wanted to translate the Christian faith into language anyone could understand. That was his passion, to translate the Christian faith in a way that anybody could understand. And part of his brilliance was that he he was teased by his colleagues at Maudlin and later Cambridge. They called him Plain Jack. You know, like you, you know, you're a gifted academician, but you're talking to plain people like oh, you, you'd meet at the subway. And they meant it as kind of an insult. And he wore this badge of pride. And uh, where he could take complicated things and make them simple and understandable. And um, and he also understood process. You know, you know, I talk a lot in about process and event when it comes to evangelism, when I'm teaching on those various things. He understood process, that you had to do that with people. There was a very obscure essay that he wrote that um, we can also put in the show notes because otherwise people wouldn't know how to find this. But it was a very one of his more obscure essays. Um, and he, in that essay, noted that the gospel went first to Jews, Judaizing Gentiles and pagans. When, when it first broke out, it went to those three groups of people. And he made an interesting observation. He said, all, all three of those groups believed in the supernatural. They were conscious of a sin and judgment. They, they had a sense of personal um, purification and release, and they felt like the world had been once been better than it now was. And he, made, he said, now nobody believes that. Nobody believes those four things. Mm -hmm. And then he said, I sometimes feel like we have to convert people to real paganism before we can convert them to Christianity. Mm -hmm. You know, he understood that kind of mm -hmm. process and event and um, to even get them to embrace aspects of even those four kinds of things, you know, the supernatural and conscious of sin and all this kind of stuff. So he understood that and it came through in his writings and his his um, apologetic arguments and his approach to apologetics. Mm -hmm. Well, that goes back to something I mentioned at the top of the podcast, which is that you still hear people, you know, talking about him, quoting him in such a different world than he lived in. And yet I think that speaks volumes to not only his pulse on culture, but I would argue just the prophetic nature of his writing. There's a lot of it. The more that I've read it, I'm like, wow, like the, the what you could predict about where the world was heading is so, so wise. And so I, I'm wondering is that a calling, do you think? Like what, how do you think he developed that for, I guess, for foresight? 
Yeah, let me answer that in a couple of ways. Um, first, let me let me say I agree with you, and then let me say I disagree. And because okay. you can love Lewis and and not you know canonize him. Mm. Um, what made him so good and 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 so prescient in in many areas was the the, the intellectual questions that plagued him throughout his spiritual journey. Uh, things like why does God allow pain and suffering or how Christianity can be the only way to God or um, the existence of miracles were the very things that plagued so many other people. And it's what he devoted his life to helping people to understand and to get you know, answers to. And so that's timeless. And, and, and that's why reading him is so helpful even to this day. And he was a translator. And that was extremely helpful. I mean, one time he said something to the effect of, you know, people praise me as a translator, but what I want to be is the founder of a school of translation because anybody can do this who'll set their mind to it. And he did set his mind to it. He was an translator, student of culture, student of scripture and the Christian faith. And so his whole goal was how can I translate this to a culture so that it gets it and understand it and can assess it. And there's a timelessness to that when anyone does that. I don't care what era. There are some writings of Lewis that that fare better than others in terms of time. I'm, you know, a fan of the screw tape letters, but oh my goodness, is it penetrated left and right with World War II, you know, asides. Sure. Mm -hmm. And and it's that can make it dif not difficult reading, but you have to realize he was writing with the bombs dropping around him. Yeah. And he was writing to people who were engulfed in world conflict. Mere Christianity, I think, is timeless, but there are parts of it that aren't. And, you know, you have to understand that most of his writings were written in 1940s and 1950s and um, 1930s. And um, and so some of that comes through even in the language that's used. So um, that one of the reasons why we did Christianity for people who aren't Christians was because we were finding that people who were reading Mere Christianity – Sometimes there was a there was a kind of a beginning of a growing disconnect, but n not so much. I mean, it's so timeless, but Christians don't have the barriers that non-Christians have to assessing Lewis. Uh, yeah. It's interesting. So we we Christians read Lewis through a Christian lens. When a non-Christian reads him, we often want to say, oh, read mere Christianity. You know, and, and someone in 2022 or 23 reads it and says, well, you know, this is good. This is interesting. This is helpful. But a lot of this, this isn't scratching where I'm itching. I have different mm -hmm. questions. And so that's that's one where his apologetics may um, may not serve the current moment because there were certain things that Lewis didn't even know was going to be coming down the pike that people are asking. Um, like, I mean, many of our questions, even about sexuality, mm. would never have really entered his mind to be worthy of a of a large essay. Mm. Uh, that's that's a fair assessment. I appreciate that. Um, I know that I'm not in the minority when I say that my first introduction to C.S. Lewis was the Chronicles of Narnia um, as a little girl. I remember reading that, um, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe in particular. Um, and I know that's a lot of people's kind of first experience with C.S. Lewis. But um, I'm interested in that because The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe in particular has is such an, I mean, as a Christian, I would say like a blatant preservation. Uh, um, presentation of the gospel. Um, I don't know maybe if it's quite as blatant to a, a, a non-Christian, but I mean, for me, it, it is very much so. And I'm just thinking like in our present day culture, which is becoming increasingly hostile towards Christianity, why do you think that that book is still so received so openly in our kind of more postmodern society? Because I don't read it through your eyes. They don't read it as a Christian. Okay. And and it's and it's indirect. It's yeah. indirect. It's 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 in and and 
And when something's indirect, it's more easily received mm-hmm. as opposed to something direct. And so, and it's arts and it's fantasy and, and, and arts have a tendency to break through, sneak through the defenses of the heart. And so that's why um, it was so powerful and effective. And I mean, Lord of the Rings was blatantly Christian uh, and, and dripping with it. And Tolkien was a very profound, serious man about his, his faith. But um, the, the genre itself, allegory, which is what it was, allows us and by the way, it's interesting. Another thing about Lewis and Tolkien. Tolkien hated allegory. Tolkien did not like uh, *Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe*. He felt like Lewis wrote it too quickly. He felt like it was too superficial. And this was a guy, of course, who would give you an entire appendix on on <laughs> how the Elvish grammar worked. Oh, so yeah. you would think that. And of course, Lewis, you know, both of them were successful though in that area. <laughs> just two different types. So Tolkien did not like allegory. Did not like that series. Hmm. And uh, but the genre allows us to be the interpreter. Uh, or better, it comes at us without aggression. And and so we react without defensiveness. But yeah, the typical person who reads it, it when they don't have a Christian worldview, they don't even have the basic contours of the gospel. They're not going to see Aslan as Jesus. They're not going to see the witch as, as Satan. They're not going to see Aslan coming off of the, the stone table as a resurrection, uh, the resurrection of Jesus. They're not going to see all that um, because they don't they don't have that story in their head. Yes. And I wonder if there's just something so strategic about that, even for adults, you know, to hear a presentation of the gospel without all of the religious baggage that you might have and hearing it kind of stripped down. Yeah. And I think that's the brilliance of that, because it's like, like, imagine you read The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe as a non-Christian and you love it. You're Mm -hmm. captivated by the story. You're moved by the sacrifice of Aslan and what he did. And, and, and the forgiveness to, to the, to um, all of them. And, and just, just, oh, you're just taken with it. And then someone tells you at the end, that's the Jesus story. Yeah. Aslan was Jesus. And then the person goes, oh, it's like, it's, it's like your eyes are open and you're touched by that story and the power of the gospel in a way that you wouldn't have been otherwise. I love that. Now you mentioned, we've talked about already that C.S. Lewis wrote in a lot of different genres, which isn't mm-hmm. normal. I mean, that's not mm-hmm. typical of an author. Um, and I'm going to put you on the spot. It tells you something of a skill set. It's amazing oh, that you could do oh, it all. Certainly, I'm going to put you on the spot. And I, because I'm interested, I know everybody wants to know, like, do you have a favorite or maybe you could choose a couple of favorites, but yeah. either maybe favorite genre or favorite book or two or essay or, you know, anything that he's written. You know, because I, I'm as fascinated by the man as I am his writings, his his autobiographical works have always been meaningful to me. Surprised by Joy, I mentioned, but also A Grief Observed, where he wrote about the death of his wife. And just very poignant. I'll, I'll always love screw tape letters. Um, and, and um, you know, he, he was once asked, how do you write so effectively about temptation? And he said, because I am so tempted. <laughs> You know, I, I'm, I'm writing about myself. So I guess in many ways, Screwtape Letters is almost another autobiographical work. Interesting. I, I love Mere Christianity. I think that is a classic. I, I think that's just a book everybody ought to read. Um, you and I have had offline conversations about how we both really like the science fiction trilogy mm-hmm. and that is not as popular or as well-known as for other people like Perlandra, The Hidden Planet and such. But um, so uh, I don't think I've read anything of Lewis I didn't like. And didn't gain something from, and uh, even working through the massive, I got massive volumes of his personal correspondence, which I find fascinating. Well, I guess on that note, I mean, 
it's obvious to anybody listening to this podcast that you know a lot about him, that he has influenced you. And I know also from reading um, your book, The Traveler's Guide to the Kingdom, um, which I really enjoy just that you have, you know, been to a lot of places where he has been, like you have, your life has intersected his in a lot of different ways. I'm interested then, like, because you know more about him than just the average person who would just read his story. So what from your experience and your interaction with his life has been really meaningful to you? I'm glad you mentioned that book. I I, 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 I don't want to push my own stuff, but that, that book is very special to me. And uh, maybe we can link how you can get a copy of it as an ebook on, on the show notes. But it was, it was kind of my spiritual mentoring book where I imagined if I had someone who was that I could pour into, how would I like to do it? What would be a way of doing it? And I, and I, well, I would, I would take them to places mm-hmm. and I would take them to very special places. And, 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 and I have each chapter is a different place that I would take them from the Billy Graham library in Charlotte to Wittenberg to um, Iona. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then of course, one of the places was the Eagle and Child pub. And on bringing up all things Lewis and and had had more fun writing that chapter than I can begin to tell you. Um, the thing about Lewis is that he wasn't interested in staking out narrow theological territory. He really was writing mere Christianity. And he got that phrase from Richard Baxter earlier, who said um, who wanted to be merely Christian, not Catholic or Protestant, just mere Christian. And Lewis seized on that. And 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 he didn't want to stake out, as I mentioned, this narrow theological ground, but but mere Christianity, the essence of it, what what we can all you know embrace. And so as a result, he was more scholarship than academic. He was translator of things, and he took this amazing intellect and 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 used it to popularize things. And 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 I think that was special. If you've been in academia at all, which I have. You find that you can get seduced to bow down before the altar of the academy, and you're simply writing work for other academicians, and you you really lose the sense of making a wider difference or communicating things on a popular level when you could. And and Lewis turned his was brilliant. I mean, his first work was still considered one of the best academic treatises written on that subject. Um, and um, but he 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 turned his back on it, if you will, in order to be a translator and a popularizer. And and I think that was. That was something that is part of his life and story that I really gleaned from. Mm. Well, as a final um, question then for this episode, if somebody has not read anything from Lewis or it's been a while, what would you recommend that they start with? And I'm going to add something to this. Is there something that you would recommend maybe now that they're a Christian that they go back and reread from a different lens, perhaps? Um and then, okay, I'm going to add one more here too. Yeah, While we're yeah, throwing yeah, out yeah. book suggestions. Um, and then there are a lot of biographies that are written about him. You mentioned his yeah. autobiography, but is there a particular biography that you would recommend? Yeah, I do have a couple of favorites on that, yeah. Okay. Um, in terms of where to begin, if you've never read him, um, I, I still would probably say Mere Christianity. Okay. Um, if you are now a Christian and you want to go back and reread something and um, uh, that um, – there's, there's, I, I would still say screw tape letters. Okay. And there's also a wonderful essay, Men Without Chests. That's a fascinating essay. And, um, and, uh, um, then, then there's, there's the biographies. Alan Jacobs wrote of one called The Narnian. And I think it may be the, the best one, uh, uh, The Narnian, you know, based on Narnia, but The Narnian. Okay. 
Yeah. Uh, Alan Jacobs. Humphrey Carpenter wrote the definitive work on the Inklings as a whole, which includes Lewis, but all includes just the Inklings as a group. And um, and that would be a great one to read, along with the two autobiographies that I mentioned, Surprised by Joy and A Grief Observed. Awesome. Gosh, this has been a really fun and very easy podcast. <laughs> um, and I'm sure we've always scratched the surface and all of the things that we could talk about with C.S. Lewis. But I think this is enough to, at least for me, encourage me to one, keep reading him, but then also to read him through the lens of someone who wants to be a student of culture and how to um, winsomely did do what um, Lewis did so well with some of the postures and humility that you mentioned about his life. I love that. Awesome. Well, thank you, Jim. And thank you guys for listening. And we hope you'll tune, tune back in next week. Thank you for listening to this week's installment of the Church and Culture Podcast with Dr. James White. We hope it was not only informative, but challenging and the start to an ongoing conversation. To stay up to date with all the latest, check out the daily headline news and subscribe to the Church and Culture blog, all found at churchandculture.org. You can even keep up with Jim by following him on Instagram, Facebook, or Twitter at James Emery White. We hope you'll join us next week. Goodbye for now.